Hello everyone and welcome back to Dolly Back, the film podcast where we indulge and defend our favorite films, whether they're beloved classics, forgotten gems, or misunderstood masterpieces. I am one half of your co-hosting duo, Eric Meyerhofer, and joining me as always is my co-host, Prashiv Parmar. Not to eschew the regular kind of intro that we have to the episodes was kind of cheeky back and forth, but I think what I'm most caught up on as we get to this seminal auteur is where's the dolly? This is someone who's renowned for their mounted camera, their static frame. So I think it's honestly just really fun to approach it from a completely kind of antithetical perspective to what we've already established. This idea of panning back from our own kind of spectatorship and maybe trying to create not an objective distance, but at least some distance to kind of view the artifice of a film. And this film is very much kind of resistant to that. And so is this filmmaker, I think. I watched Jean Dillemont back in January when I had COVID. And there was something about me being kind of like confined to my room, watching a three and a half hour movie about like the kind of ennui of daily life as a Belgian housewife and how that can deteriorate and decay over time. That was incredibly like hard hitting, like it like just completely drilled into like my head, just exactly what happened. I remember I was live texting my girlfriend because my girlfriend had seen it already. And she was like, oh, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. And I've been meaning to watch it. And I think the scene where she doesn't put the money in the jar, I fucking freaked. I had to like, I had to pause the movie or something because there's a rigorous attention to film grammar in a way that is so self-effacing to Ackerman's style in that movie that caught like formal breakdown and how it's wed to kind of this like breakdown of routine is completely overwhelming. Like I could not imagine watching that sort of thing in a movie theater because it, it it's such a simple thing and it's completely on its own terms it's just like such an amazing tactic and it's interesting reading kind of contemporary reviews of this film because people were people didn't really like that she dialed back what she did in Ackerman not that i think it was the overwhelming opinion of critics at the time this movie came out in 1978 so it was just a few years after Jean Dumont but People were like, oh, she like, she's like, she's reserved. She's dialed back in this. And I'm like, how can you not see that it's anything but like a, like kind of a development or an evolution of her own style? Yeah. Like, how can, how can a, she's not even 30 when she makes this film. And she's like, this is, there's already elements of like a late style blooming. Yeah. Like, it's actually <laughs> an incredible exercise in filmmaking for someone to make. It's an outstanding film. And you and I were talking, like you even said yourself before we, they hit record, like this is one of the favorite films that of yours like that we've done so far probably all time at this point i hate to kind of jump the gun on these things but i'm very responsive to her style and while we're mm-hmm. let's just not beat around the bush anymore folks we're talking about chantal ackerman and we're talking about meetings of anna and this is a really strange entry point i think for both of us and i do want to ask you so was jean dilmon your only ackerman you've seen or was it the first yes. ackerman you've seen my first and only before this, so this is my second Ackerman. I haven't seen News from Home. I haven't seen No Home Movie. I haven't seen any of that. But like, I know of them. I know of News from Home. I know the, I know the basic structure. I mean, doing readings for this film kind of illuminated these elements of these films. But I think the one thing that I, I didn't necessarily clue into was how intense her investigation of her own relationship with her mother was until I kind of read about this movie. Because I think my basis of interpretation for Dilmont is just kind of this modernist kind of take on 
cinematic feminism and how can we make a movie or how can Chantel make a movie inherently about like the material sort of experience of living as a woman in that kind of social strata, so on and so forth. This is just a completely like personal film. Not that I think, not that Dumont is not a personal film. Like it's, that'd be silly to say that. But like this film is so deeply personal. It makes you want to cry by the end. Honestly. It really does, and I don't, yeah. I, I don't, I do not, I do not want to spoil the final shot because I think the final shot is is insane. It's absolutely amazing, but there's so much wrapped up in that conclusion that I think we'll discuss. For sure, that like this is just someone like op- she is completely just opening her heart for everyone to kind of see. I guess maybe just a few tidbits about both myself. And I guess where Akamir's coming from, for the average, I guess, well, not layman, but someone who's not maybe familiar with their work, to her approach to her films. But I feel pretty fortunate, at least for my, on my own part, to have watched From the Other Side. So that's like a mini kind of documentary about the struggle of Mexican immigrants as they're trying to immigrate to America, as well as mm-hmm. News from Home. And they film a kind of odd, not synthesis, but they do, they do display early style, like you said, this kind of shows us kind of a late style kind of thing. But... News from Home being very personal in the sense that it incorporates letters from her mother when she was living in New York. So it is obviously this kind of introduction to stream of conscience in terms of Ackerman style. If you haven't seen any of her work before, we're talking about Jetu Il El. She's in there in the frame on the mounted camera. So it is kind of this biographical thing that Anne is very much borrowing from in in the kind of the way, and I think you know this painter because we took this class together, but Artemisia Gentileschi. I remember she did a mm. self-portrait of herself. It's quite literally just, it's this prototypical selfie in a painting. And I can't help but kind of harken back to that when I think of Ackerman style. But nevertheless, mm. from the other side, being this kind of socially conscious work, not essentially saying that that's overly present in this film, especially, but this is kind of focus on architecture, on borders, on the way that human existence is kind of structured through, you know, the spaces we walk through and the kind of time that it takes up. I think that's largely present in that work as well. So it's, it's kind of easy for me to tap into a work like Meeting Zivana, which I think to a lot of people, it will frankly just read as slow. You have a very co- mm-hmm. deliberately glacially paced uh, artwork. And I don't know if you want to say something about this, but I think one story I want to get out of the way. I think you're familiar with Michael Snow. I think you saw a couple of his films yep. at TIFF this year, right? I it, saw Wavelength. Yeah, they did a 16 mil screening. Yeah. That's the only Michael Snow I've seen, though. I'm pretty sure it's probably going to be a filmmaker we revisit on this podcast. But nevertheless, there's a quite famous story of Chantal introducing one of his films at a film festival. And right. she was a bit frustrated over the way the programmers were displaying the film on a kind of smaller screen, on the noise from the projector, and, you know, all kind of, maybe just eschewing some of the larger points of the story in the interest of the pod. You can obviously see that Chantal is interested in the way something is exhibited or presented on film. It's very deliberate the way that she sets out. Or sorry, meticulous, I think, is the right word. You talk about a film like Jean mm-hmm. Diomond. There's an interview that she gives where the movement of her kind of peeling potatoes, a famous scene from that film, the act of her kind of going slower with that on purpose, a lot of people would probably wring their hands at watching this. But Chantal, mm. she said that in the moment, that was the direction that came to her. So the initial take that she had was actually quite fa- a lot faster. It's only in that that Chantal has felt she wanted to take time from the viewer. And she said it's the ultimate compliment mm-hmm. to kind of pace one by saying, you know, two hours flew by. But now you're fundamentally yeah. kind of reconfiguring that in an Ackerman film because she's taking the time. And I think that's a really great thing to sit with. Now, just to hand the mic back to you, is that kind of your experience with the film as well? And I certainly don't think it's pejorative or, you know, wrong in any sense, if that is, right? 
in the past few years as I've really kind of come to know myself as like a, a cinephile, whatever, that feels like a dirty word sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, as I've, the more I watch films, I think the more I have to reckon with how inconsistent I am with slower paced movies. I will admit there were times watching Diamant where I, I, I got, like, I felt like it was getting a bit long in the tooth, but I do appreciate absolutely this idea that Ackerman is like taking the time from the spectator, but she understands, I think fundamentally that this like taking and giving of time is like this mutual relationship between the filmmaker and the audience member, the spectator through the, the vessel of the screen. This is what makes her such a good filmmaker because there are filmmakers that understand one side of that relationship where they understand that like time is their domain and the spectator is non-agential in the way that they interpret that and there are other filmmakers mostly i think in of the popular kind of like spectacle variety where time and storytelling and the essence of cinema is completely in the hands of the spectator we have to be kind of at the we make films at the behest of their interest and entertainment but to understand fundamentally and like this is what metz was talking about when he talks about the screen and how it's embedded in this very deeply psychoanalytical relationship between like seeing and being seen and, and making things to be seen. And I think Ackerman understands that so specifically. And it's, it's the, it's the staticness. It's the, it's the lifelessness or not even, not even actually I take that back. It's not lifeless whatsoever. It's static and it's still, but it's not lifeless. And she somehow does that to a degree where you don't care that like a camera never moves and you don't care that characters stare out windows for like, handfuls of minutes on end and that she replicates scenes and that any other filmmaker that would watch scenes and films would be like this could you could leave this on the cutting room floor she thinks that it's completely foundational to her style of filmmaking because totally she is making she's she is filmmaking based on gestures i don't know if i would say she's like a student of brisson in that way where she is kind of like cinema moves through figures like anna is just a figure for her and through her set for her cinema same same way that like Diamant, you know, the action of peeling a potato, it, it's it's more than just the potato and and the peeler and the person peeling, right? Yeah. But at the same time, that's all it is. It's just the elements on screen together, right? One hundred percent. No, I think that's totally present even from the first shot. The way that they're trying to focus on, I mean, maybe a divorce from that Bersonian idea of cinema moves through figures, but I think maybe before before I illustrate how the compositions are kind of opened up in that first shot. We could probably talk about a plot summary, and I think that's also kind of a yeah. bit of an elementary thing to do with an Ackerman film, because this is, again, I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying it also feels very flux, flux of conscience in many respects. So mm. I think just to kind of lay it out for people who haven't seen the film in a while or just want to know what the plot is, the film kind of centers around a filmmaker named Anna Silver. And I think from that, a lot of people are quick to kind of jump to the conclusion that it is this kind of stand-in for Ackerman. I think you would be right in mm. that sense, because it also centers around a yeah, close relationship yeah. to her mother, which is a pretty prominent theme in all of her films. But nevertheless, it is haunted by this profound sense of transience, of loneliness, that she's kind of moving through these empty liminal spaces. Well, not empty, but liminal spaces, trying to connect with people from her past, or, or just people she's in affairs with, or just lonely souls in general. It's a collection of these kind of portraits of people in conversations and the sort of key here is Anna's more often than not just a passive observer right and we can talk about this in the terms of how Ackerman frames her in each kind of shot in each conversation and how that kind of evolves throughout the film because you have a film like Je Tu Ilo the filmmakers Ackerman's in the frame itself 
you have news from home. It's very much her perspective with the mounted camera. You don't have someone standing in to kind of, I guess, carry the emotional weight of that or to be this vessel for the spectator, so to speak. So this is a great evolution on that. But if this is something that's maybe not your speed, it's just a great way to kind of configure everything Ackerman's going for at the at the kind of forefront mm-hmm. of her career and kind of synthesize it into something where you have at least a vessel to deal with, but it's also the filmmaker herself in the frame, if that makes any sense on kind of what I described mm-hmm. in her past films. Is there anything mm-hmm. I guess you want to say about maybe, because we talked about this with Lynch on Lost Highway, how I guess futile it is to give a plot summary for certain filmmakers, for certain films. Do you feel a kind of similar sensation with Ackerman? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I agree that it's it's futile, but it's like it's an it's futile for completely different reasons. I mean, like yeah. trying to describe the plot of like a, a Lynch film is not unlike trying to redraw a maze from memory, but then <laughs> trying to describe an Ackerman film is like just trying to write a haiku. It's not. It's not. Those it's important, analogies. but yeah. it's not. Co- it's not complicated, right? The meanings of Anna. Is is quite simply about Aurore Clément playing Anna Silver as a stand-in for Ackerman. She's a Belgian filmmaker, kind of on a, like a bit of a European tour promoting her new films. She stops in West Germany, she stops in Belgium, and she stops in France. It is quite simply just it's on the fringe of being just like a collection of vignettes of her meeting people throughout her life, whether they're old or new companions, and the way that those interactions build her own self-identity but also how like there's an overwhelming emptiness to every single interaction she has i want to say one thing about the title and i i I sometimes kind of get up my own ass about like (laughs) foreign titles versus their english translations and for what it's worth the meanings of anna is basically a one-for-one mirror of like what les rendezvous d'anna means but i'll always kind of tend towards the title of Les Rendezvous d'Anna, because when I think of like a meeting, it's interesting because like a meeting, if the the intention always feels like it's arranged, like you arrange a meeting, you come into it with a plan, you plan to meet this person. Rendezvous, which I mean, translation wise, it, it means largely the same thing. But like when you think of a rendezvous, you almost think of something more spontaneous. But at the same time, you think of something without intention, without planning and something that may not necessarily lead anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's funny because for how much kind of actual distance this film covers, I think it starts in Cologne, goes to Brussels, and then it goes to Paris. She meets so many people that have been so many places, but nobody really knows anybody. Yeah. I specifically think of the guy on the train who she meets, who talks about being to so many countries living in South America, but where is he left but you know alone on a train going to paris he says quite specifically this is the city that i'm going to stay in you yeah. know this is it he most likely said that every single time he went somewhere else we use the word liminality a lot but it's like it's like this purgatory right like everybody everybody is like lost and they're and they're waiting their turn to finally get in somewhere yeah it's the mother of this man that Anna was engaged to like two times but broke it off that is like insisting she settled down with him but she is enough of a vagabond that she needs to kind of keep moving and it's it becomes this kind of like Ouroboros in a way where she feels like she needs to keep moving to kind of like get away from any sort of like consistent relationship or like and that sort of thing but at the same time she yearns for that for that right and that's why you know we'll get into the the end later but that's why like the end of the film is just so much more 
intense. It's that like she's coming face to face with this this underlying ambition of hers to kind of escape these things, but also yearn for them. And I guess just even leaning on that point about not necessarily symmetry, but I mean, the, just that Ouroboros kind of shape that you're pointing to. I think one thing I want to talk about, and it's present from the opening composition, right? You open out on a train station, camera static, as it is with almost every shot in this film, and it's a symmetrical composition of this country. It's split in half, and you see a kind of train proceeding and receding into the vanishing point from the right side. I don't know how much I can bring kind of Renaissance principles <laughs> into a composition like that. You obviously have kind of a dreary color palette set in kind of an overcast day. So nothing's meant to necessarily kind of jump out of you this kind of vibrant or kind of bombastic or ostentatious way. That's really not Ackerman's style. And I think it's also a strong contrast to News From Home. I wouldn't say like that's also the most bombastically kind of staged film, but the way the camera's used is I think a lot more maybe frenetic. I think it's a lot more colorful when you have the environment of New York obviously present. And I think there's kind of maybe not deliberate, but there's an, an obvious choice to kind of pivot away from that and kind of how Europe looks at these spaces, at train stations and things like that. I think the reason I'm so focused right now on the kind of composition of symmetries, I'm talking, I'm thinking about the scene she has with her former kind of, I guess, mother-in-law, you'd call her. And there's mm-hmm. this conversation they have on the bench at the train station. And I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm seeing things or if I'm recollecting differently, but Anna slowly starts to bridge the gap. She slowly starts to lean in to the mother-in-law. I'm not sure if this is like this empirical thing, but I felt quite strongly upon watching it, rewatching the scene that that was actually happening over the course of like five, mm-hmm. uh, seven minutes. And mm-hmm. I think what I'm stuck in, I'll just pass off the mic to you right now, is like, what do you get, I guess, when you break this kind of invisible rule or line that you have in a composition, mm-hmm. right? Do you get that sense of drama? Mm-hmm. I guess this kind of Baroque quality? Because I think that's also what yeah. I'm drawing from, or at least this... That yearning that you're talking about, I think that's what's being emblematized when Ackerman goes for something like that. And maybe there's other instances that you like to talk about where that shows up. I think it's it's really just a testament to her skill as a filmmaker, because I'm thinking earlier this year, I wrote a review about M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, and I talked about how elegantly he separated the two main characters through his camera. But he did so in shooting singles and staging single shots. And, and using distance, you know, depth of field, focal length to separate them as much as possible. And then you think about the inherent way that the camera can separate people just based on the fact that you can butt up frames of, so, of singles, but they nevertheless kind of occupy this different space time, right? Like they, they don't occupy the same frame. But then there's a painterly aspect to Ackerman. And I do enjoy that you're kind of like wrapping up our art history education <laughs> yeah. in this because, you know, it's not, it's not impossible to separate figures in a painting or even in a photograph really like there are there are ways that you manipulate the composition to separate characters but when you give yourself the the restriction of showing two people on the same plane and she does this so frequently throughout the film think about her confrontation with um Heinrich in in his garden outside of his house where they kind of fluctuate depth of field but it's it's when they're kind of like standing like face to face that they feel the most separated it's when Heinrich is kind of like talking this weird kind of like you know he's ta- he's lamenting about like a previous Europe or it's yeah. it's the moment on the bench it's like she is so 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 dialed into this way of like separating bodies or like figures and people even though they're on the same level right like 
one thing I, I think maybe to kind of like tease out your point even more is think about how many times she frames Anna looking out windows like with the back of her head to the camera and then think about the way that she frames the very first time that Anna meets her lover I think his name's Dan Daniel in Paris yeah she frames it in the car with their heads with the back of their heads facing the camera this is supposed to be this almost warm reunion like she ha- she's obviously had confrontations with Heinrich she talks to her mother about this confrontation we had like the sexual confrontation she had with a woman but then we know we understand Daniel as being this kind of you know this material stand-in for her not not so much domesticated but this very i i guess orthodox version of like what romantic life is like but then it's so cold and it's so disconnected she breaks that rule she like she crosses the invisible line but when she does i'm pretty sure he says to stop it right like yeah. like she's obviously trying to like be warm she's trying to be romantic she's trying to touch him and stuff and obviously he's driving whatever but there, there are these formal rules that she's building and breaking, but she's doing it. It's such a silent kind of like masterclass, I think. Yeah. It's almost as if, and maybe I'm going over, over too far with this, but you obviously have, in most of the films we've talked about, the kind of shot reverse shot that we have for almost each conversation. And we've toyed with it too in the way that you can reconfigure that to kind of show different perspective, kind of, I guess, a different philosophy of the character. But nevertheless... It's kind of an inversion of the 180 rule. It's almost as if there's this Ackerman rule when you frame a conversation because the camera can't move at all in these kind of in these invisible kind of rules that she's established for herself. So you can you're not cutting along any axis. Mm-hmm. It's all just playing out from this one perspective. So I don't know. Maybe I'll go that far and say that's the Ackerman rule. I think that's that'd be a fun mm-hmm. thing to toy around with. I think a lot of people who admire her work and my imitate her work. I think that's maybe the one thing to maybe keep in mind. I was just going to say, like, you know, it almost like this is not that I'm like going to frame this as like an epiphany, but it's just a <laughs> bit of an idea. It's almost like she understands like how easy it is to separate people via the camera that she's like, why not just let them separate themselves? Yeah. Like, why not just do it? Why not just do it in frame? She it, it's it's probably the most kind of like not not neorealist, but it's it's this most like realist interpretation of how people can be together but not understand one another she doesn't need to separate them based on like film grammar or structure or formalism she does it in camera through this kind of like natural performance that she gets out of her actors yeah and now that you're mentioning it i think before i go on to i guess the editing of the film which ackerman also had pretty strong thoughts on a couple of interviews she's done but (laughs) people are gonna kill me but i keep going back to this film grizzly man just the way hers like uses his camera and once again, it's in a documentary setting. I think there's another film we talked about where I also brought this up. It was more fictional. But obviously you have, at least Grizzly Man Herzog is just pointing the camera at people describing these macabre events. And they struggle with that, right? To articulate that mm-hmm. when the camera's still going, people feel this compulsive need to continue. And I think it's fun when Ackerman, who's kind of marrying both nonfiction and fiction, and not in a rare instance, but in a very unique instance in her work particularly, the actors have very deliberate kind of planned out movements for how they're going to, I guess, articulate their role. But like you said, they still have to struggle with duration, with the passing of time. And they, I'm mm. not sure how much is improvised. I'm going to assume not much because Ackerman, like we kind of mentioned earlier, has been pretty involved with most of what she does around, you know, mm-hmm. from exhibition to just producing a film, directing a film. So I'm going to go on a limb and say it's deliberate. I don't know, it's an interesting thing to kind of meditate on, right? It's like, how do people fill time and how do people create space? 
when the camera is just going on and on and on. It's a fun thing I think we consider on this podcast pretty frequently. I think Ackerman's a pretty unique instance of that. I think we I think we can move into the editing. I think yeah. like editing is obviously just an extension of like her formal kind of how dialed in she is formally. But maybe if anything we can we can try to like tie in the the critical the critical kind of reception of this film and how you know even if even if you look at like the the wiki you know reading here many critics found fault with what they perceived as quote scaling back of stylistic and thematic radicalism now we already talked about or at least i think i mentioned earlier at the top of the episode about how the efficiency with which ackerman displays her 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 kind of formal mastery i think in that movie is the ability to like create patterns and she creates patterns through repeated compositions repeated shots and it's actually the length of the film this is where this kind of taking of the viewer's time comes in it's the length of the film that creates this mechanism in our brains as a spectator that you know our understanding of this filmic world breaks down when the way the camera captures it breaks down too so Les Rendezvous d'Anna, like the meetings of Anna, it doesn't really do the same thing. Obviously, her camera's still static. It's still mounted. She still captures things in these kind of like wider compositions. But she's not really trying to create patterns necessarily. There are patterns in this movie. And I maybe we can get into it a little bit later with like, you know, the repeated compositions of characters looking out windows. These almost stand in dolly shots of her camera is static, but the train is moving and the landscape is moving past her. That sort of thing. The train is the dolly in that situation but it's this is where uh, maybe maybe i'm wrong in saying this is late style but she, it, it's like she's literally only three or four years detached from making jean diamant and she understands that with a movie like this she doesn't need to kind of she doesn't need to reinvent the wheel necessarily she can kind of let these performances play out in a less kind of premeditated way if that makes sense and and where the where the cutting comes in, where the editing comes in, is it's well obviously I mean you know this is this is her grammar, this is her this is her cinematic language that she is kind of like reinventing in a way. So I, I feel like maybe I don't have as many concise of thoughts on like the editing specifically. And I mean, if you wanted to take it away, be my guest. But that's kind of like I think I've said my piece on that for sure. And I think maybe if anything, I could fold in just some other piece from interviews she's given out in the past. She spoke about. Moving from, and this also just goes to composition as well, but going from the concrete to the abstract back to the concrete again, which is just, I guess, I'm not going to say long-winded, but just a way of saying for people who might not be on the same wavelength as that, as kind of what Eric was talking about, the Ouroboros of kind of moving between modes, this kind of symmetry that we're talking about and going between just how someone perceives the frame. It's not useless information. I think that's what Ackerman was talking about mostly. It's not, even if it's not relevant to the quote-unquote plot, which a lot of people fault movies for these days, it still has relevant pattern or routine, like you mentioned, Mm -hmm. or even, I'm not going to say character. I think routine is also the perfect word for that. But she also talks about how when she's editing or even making the film, she doesn't necessarily think about where to cut as she's directing the film. She just kind of lets the shot play out. And we've talked about other filmmakers Mm -hmm. who are, you know, fond of a similar kind of style. It's only when she gets to the editing room that there's this kind of eureka moment and she learns how to cut, which is why I'm a little interested, I guess, in the train conversation. Again, you know, the whole film is not symmetrical all the way through. We're not trying to imply that. And I think the train scene is also just emblematic of that. You have this kind of, I want to say one third composition in the frame. The aspect ratio is not quite four by three, but it's also not like, you know, like 16 by nine or anything or widescreen or anything like that. But you have 
I guess there's this one lingering shot. I think uh, I think it's four minutes of honest faces. A man's talking about you know what cities he's been to. He's been to South America, and I'm going to stay here. It's the kind of drastic mm-hmm. inversion from you know her conversation with Heinrich. Uh, with oh, let me just say it again, Heinrich. Is that how you say it? Basically, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, uh, and her mother-in-law, right? You have them staged in the same place in the frame, and now we're moving from Anna, this kind of passive listener, someone who's kind of offering. Her own kind of, I guess, conversational nuggets of wisdom, but as they are, she's also still passive in the way that she's... It's kind of one-word responses. You guys have been in texting relationships before. Honestly, it has made me meditate a bit on how we talk to each other when, I guess, not necessarily that we're not interested or we're not completely delved into a conversation, but she's saying on the D. So they say, okay, and she's not really contributing to the conversation. Obviously, that changes when she gets to Brussels, I believe, and meets with her mom. We have this kind of slow build-up throughout the text of the film and the way the editing kind of participates in that, I think is what I'm trying to get at. You're going from these, you know, one or two shots, oneers, oneers that are two shots, two characters in the frame. It cuts solely to Anna. And then you're building up to, I guess, the only kind of sincere conversation she has in the film that plays out in this one symmetrical, there's no breaking of the rule. It's kind of shrouded in dark kind of thing. I'm not one to kind of impose these artificial limits on someone like Ackerman's work, but I found it very interesting when she talks about how there's a eureka movement. And you're moving from concrete to abstract to concrete. I think that's a sensation I very much got out of this film. Is there something you want to say? Not even just, I guess, on what I just bracketed there in terms of the film, but I guess the shape that the film has when it's edited. Because there's a lot of wonders in this film. It's easy to get kind of lost in it, right? I'm thinking about the way that she shoots the interior of the train. Mainly because, you know, and maybe maybe this can kind of like move into the way that I see this film as like being this picaresque movie built on silence. And and maybe this is where our, our kind of reading for the week comes in. Um, we actually pulled a few articles, one from Mubi, the other from Little White Lies. But think about her train voyage between Brussels and Paris. This is the one where she meets this man and has this conversation that you, you're just speaking about right now. But think about the scenes that kind of like, Dot her experience on the train before that. You know, she's first in this kind of like this cabin alone, as is standard for European trains. It seems like there's these these compartments and cars where there's like kind of like benches and it's kind of like a closed off cabin. Whatever. She's sitting in there, and then there's this very interesting kind of. And this is where I'm thinking of Brisson almost, but for these faceless men asking for her passport, she kind of like you know she struggles. She's kind of like flustered, looking for her passport that kind of thing and you never see you never see these officials that are wanting you just see their hands taking the passport and, and giving it back thing and there's no inserts obviously i don't think ackerman from the films i've seen has never done an insert like that in her life not that she needs to i think that the action being on screen there speaks as loudly as it has to but then think about how she's moving how she moves through the the compartments of the train after that before she meets this man that she speaks to it's so claustrophobic and if in a in a movie where even kind of these, these, these hotel rooms, whether they're dingy or pristine, they, they somehow feel cavernous and she feels like she feels so tiny. It's, the, it's this cabin where she has to move through, you know, she has to shimmy between people. She tries to get past that group of men. I don't even know what language they were speaking, but she can't. They kind of do like the, the creepy like guy thing where like they, they're like they put their hand on a woman as they move by or as she moves by and she, she kind of retreats from that situation and she's still, you know, she's trying to like shimmy her way around what seems to be a very male dominant kind of space of the train and it it seems to be this action of kind of procession this action of traveling that is the most uncomfortable for her yeah you know it's when she's actually able to kind of settle down and and this is where i think like lens decision 
and composition is so interesting. There's one specific shot I'm thinking of, and I don't know if you remember it. It, it it's almost like it's a ceiling mounted camera. It's like at the top of like I'm assuming the the door to the end of a, a cabin. Yeah, it's the end of the cabin. The yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it's looking it's looking down this kind of like very narrow hallway with just bodies littered throughout the entire thing. And and you know you just see Anna trying to kind of traverse this this very very closed in packed in sardine can and. <laughs> What's incredible is that, you know, so many other filmmakers, I think, would elect to do that in this some sort of like, you know, intimate handheld situation. But she just kind of lets it play out. And the, the suffocation is, is very slow to build up, but it builds up nevertheless. And it's it's when, you know, the film opens back up to these like these simple, almost symmetrical compositions of people talking. It's like, OK, well, this is this is where this film kind of lives and breathes. Yeah. Right. It, it's 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 in these. And, but the other thing, too, is that, like, these conversations, if anything, just fill in silences. Nobody can kind of just, like, stand beside one another and enjoy the silence. Somebody always has to be saying something. But it's not for any sort of, like, bad reason. It's just something that people do. And it's something that Ackerman kind of elegantly is observing and doing, you know, through the process of getting performances from their actors. People always have to be talking about something, right? Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought up not only the ability to appreciate silence, but even just... Just just the shot of them being at the end of the cabin because uh, you can just go back to the first shot of the film. It's very loaded in that respect. You have this procession, but she still detaches yeah, herself. Again, she detaches yeah. herself from everyone, right? Yeah, there's this procession of people that you know, maybe for people who don't remember the shot, but people who walk out of the train, they're going down the stairs at the station. And Anna, kind of just in our introduction to the character, she detaches herself completely. She goes to a telephone booth, and we're not privy to the conversation for one of the first times in the film. For what it's worth, I think that's a huge stride in the way that. Ackerman is creating this distance between the spectator and the conversation. There's so much that we can't connect to, there's so much the characters on the screen can't connect to, and that's something we're supposed to wrestle with, right? Uh, that's another mm-hmm. term we like to use a lot on the pod, but it's always a filmmaker that kind of challenges the way you, I guess, experience film, this kind of voyeuristic commercial capacity, right? Oh, two hours flew by, kind of mm-hmm. hearkening back to that. It's divorced from that. And that's why this film feels so fresh. And I think that's, I'm glad you brought up that shot. I just want to get that off my chest right there. Yeah. I think just to, to kind of tie in this movie, this movie article that you and I both enjoyed from Brandon Kaufman called Missing Links, the Silences of Chantal Ackerman. He specifically kind of talks about how this film frames Europe. You know, you have this kind of, you have these different flavors of Europeans, you have Germans, you have Belgians, you have French. And the way that this kind of this film very meticulously almost narrowly avoids framing it as this kind of odyssey. And this is where I think the picaresque comes in. And by picaresque, I mean kind of like this, this way of laterally moving across a landscape and taking it in as a character voyages across it. You know, I mean, like one of the most picaresque American movies of the last like 20, 25 years, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou by the Coens, you know, this, this odyssey, obviously it's actually based off the odyssey, but this odyssey across, you know, the Southern United States. In this case, she's kind of, she's traveling through world war ii affected european nations she's meeting kind of the skeletal remains of the people living in a husk after the shadow kind of after these dark clouds have lifted over there's still these ruins of people that are just kind of lamenting about what their countries used to be like they're people on the run not on the run they're people on the go trying to find somewhere to settle down you know hence paris will be the place that i settle down and just one thing in particular if i can find the passage he says, with every stop on Anna's itinerary, Ackerman strips another layer from the, U- the European travelogue's patina of adventure, scrapes more off its sheen of enterprise. 
in the film sterile diners the wallpaper peeling in hotel rooms the repetition of days the abandoned black roads reflecting streetlights back at the sky and it's it's when anna meets friends and family and lovers along her journey it's when you feel the silence that separates them and this is where the silence comes in and where like situations like anna's meeting with the man on the train speaks volumes it's because it almost seems like nobody's ever talking to each other they're talking into us they're talking into silence they're kind of they're throwing their ideas out into the void hoping someone will kind of catch them right i guess the composition of people looking at windows i'm also kind of taken by just one shot i want to pepper in and when they're standing at the train you mentioned people kind of look out into this void and the camera i guess kind of echoing that i don't know one shot that really stuck with me is when she's getting off at the platform i think I think it's Cologne. I think when she meets her kind of former in, mother-in-law. In the, oh, that's uh, that's Brussels. Yeah, that's Brussels, Brussels. When she's leaving Brussels, yeah. and uh, it's a pretty drawn-out shot of her getting on the train itself and saying goodbye. But I'm also cut just by the extra. Well, not even extras, just people in the shot itself. You can see throughout the entirety of it that there's the crew running on to get on the train, and as the train departs, I was so stuck on the people who are just just on the train and they were watching her mother-in-law walk down the platform. I don't know why that stuck with me so much. It kind of speaks to that void, right? Even, I guess, this natural curiosity that people in, not even just a film, but in the real life have to kind of fixate on this point of humanity and nothingness, right? I think that's what your point is kind of echoing for me. And that's what I really kind of, I'm really drawn to in an Ackerman film at large, even used from home. There's so many shots Mm -hmm. of being on subways and those kind of little tunnels that we have. And certainly you and I being on the TTC, I think that's just a similar thing that we experience day to day, right? It's this kind of universal Mm -hmm. feeling of transience and this desire to break out of it, whether it's in conversation or just with the gaze. We talk so much about like voyeurism and exhibitionism, mainly because we're kind of like we're a little fucked up and we love to think (laughs) about the we love to think about the relationship of seeing and being seen all the time because I mean that's like such a foundational relationship of cinema. Yeah. But in this case, it feels so, you know, especially going from something like Lost Highway last week to this. Yeah. I mean, this movie, this movie is almost not so much concerned with the way that people are seen or being seen so much as they are being heard. Yeah. And that like the act of seeing is kind of, you know, subordinate to that, I think. Obviously, in- intimacy is such an interesting one in this film. I mean, in, in terms of, of intimacy as it's been staged in the other Ackerman film I've seen in, in Jean Dumont. It's completely transactional until the very end when, you know, it breaks out of its transactional kind of limitations. And that's when the complete breakdown of her kind of routine reaches its climax, for lack of a better term. But in this movie, there is intimacy between Anna and Heinrich, but that kind of, you almost feel like there's an element of regret when she has to kind of like divorce herself from the situation and leave his house. You know, he says, you barely ate anything. Or she says, well, you know, I wasn't hungry, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I spilled coffee everywhere. And it wasn't my fault. And he's like, no, it wasn't. They're being polite. But at the same time, there's something bubbling underneath. And even when Anna comes back to Paris and meets her lover, Daniel, they don't actually have sex he just gets sick and she has to go and get medicine for him the actual most intimate part of the movie is when she sings to him yeah and how other what other you know what's what's so what's so amazing about that shot too this might be my favorite shot in the movie first not only does ackerman frame anna against a window but finally not looking out the window with her back with her the back of her head to the camera she's looking She's looking toward, she's looking past the camera, obviously, 
but we see her face. It's the only, it's one of the only times in the movie that she seems legitimately kind of like joyful. Yeah. But Ackerman, you know, she has to undercut, I think, any kind of like undisturbed joy of this by having that, that white noise of the static TV in the background. Yeah. As if the moment can't play out on its own. There has to be something there. Right, I, I, and and not only that, you know, she se- she somehow still manages to separate characters within the frame, even while one character is technically out of frame, because you see the reflection of Daniel laying on the bed through the window. That is such an insane fucking composition. I don't even know, man. And I, I'm really glad you brought up just the TV in general, because I'll, I think one thing I also want to talk about really quick, at least in my brief encounter with Ackerman's work relative to other fans of her work or anything like that but just the soundscapes she has it's I mean not to make a kind of a poor comparison but you have this kind of museum exhibit kind of vibe to it in the sense that you're meant to be immersed in this by just like ambience at the end of the day right and you have you know the scenes in the taxi cab where you can just hear the kind of wheels hit the tarmac the kind of rain pattering on the glass outside this is it's not even really just meditative. It's just a very deliberate way to kind of have this even kind of sound mix. There's nothing, there's no bangs going off. There's no almost dead noise. There's a constant barrage of sound, but it's all very, I guess, equalized and constant. And you don't really notice it when you're watching the film. That's, that's the kind of point of the diegesis. And I know that's kind of something we take for granted, I guess, when we're watching a film. But it's very nice to have kind of an even keeled mix. That's also a really, I guess, key part of the way she approaches the film and the way she tries to kind of I guess, bridge human experience. I think if we're going to kind of dabble into what's been going on recently on film Twitter or just discourse, are sex scenes supposed to be part of your kind of vision of cinema? And I think that's a pretty long kind of ham-fisted way of saying it, courtesy of Quentin Tarantino. But I think let a scene like this, and even Lost Highway last week, I mean, what are we talking about? I mean, I think they're powerful testaments as to how they can, well, this is a really surface level to look at it, but move the narrative forward, but also just a communicate character and barriers, right? This film is so rife with them. You talk about the singing scene, her back is kind of to the window, it's facing the camera for the first time, and it's peppered in between this kind of just, it's, it's a scene of intimacy that's kind of sucked or, you know, bled dry of intimacy in the first place, right? It's that Ouroboros relationship that you're talking about, moving from, mm-hmm. you know, concrete to abstract to concrete again. It's bereft of any kind of actual joy. So when you have these kind of cross-cutting, you get, you get almost the only kind of point of, I guess, a, a Kuleshov effect or this kind of Padovkin kind of montage effect when, you have, when you're bridging these scenes together, if that makes any sense. That's the kind of drama, I guess, you elicit from a film mm-hmm. that's so you know, rife with a static camera and just wonders, right? I think that's why that scene, or the sequence in particular, you know, everything from the sound mix to the way it's cut together with other scenes in that unit, I think that's why it's so prominent for me. It's, it's a really great kind of anticlimax, if I want to go far enough yeah. to say that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like, like the only time where silence is kind of necessary to hear her, her, hear her sing, she, she's not afforded it, right? Yeah, 100%. You have, it's, it's, it's really incredible. And I think we can partner these scenes together and just hopefully we have enough time to talk about them but the scene with her mother in bed we definitely can't neglect yes. that and we have to talk the yeah. final and shot the final scene. which we won't say anything yeah. about now but i think it's, it's a great compositional parallel and just the way that's mm-hmm. kind of bridging together ackerman's work or kind of you know raison d'etre mm-hmm. for i guess doing these films or even mm-hmm. having the stand-in she meets her mother in paris and her mother is actually played by the same actress that actress that played anna in l'aventura but she meets her mother in paris they talk 
they try to go to a restaurant to sit down and eat. They find a hotel. Uh, they find a hotel uh, where there's a room with one bed, no bathroom. And that's another really interesting thing. She refuses to actually go home. Yeah. You know, that's a big <laughs> thing. She always insists on going to hotels. And when she goes and visits her mother in Paris, they stay in a hotel. They don't, they don't go to anybody's house. She doesn't go to her house until the end. And I mean, that's for a reason. Yeah. But it's this, this prolonged scene where her, her mother and her get in bed. Her mother is wearing kind of like a nightgown or a robe. Anna strips down naked and gets in bed with her mother. And it's obviously, you know, there's, there's not really, I think, anything. Well, maybe there is something. Not Oedipal, obviously, because it's not like a, a son and a mother, but it's a daughter and a mother. But she outlines, you know, in, the, in this solemn kind of monologue, this sexual interaction she had with a woman. And she, she kind of punctuates it by saying that she had thoughts of her mother. But I think what, what is such an immense, you know, there's such an immense innocence to this scene because the entire time I'm thinking this daughter who is, who is laying everything bare, who is completely exposed, she's almost kind of this like, it's almost this like baby and their mother, you know, kind of like returning to this like moment yeah. of innocence, right? She is, she is exposed, but at the same time, she is completely comfortable, you know, lying in bed beside her mother and that sort of thing. Her mother, you know, she just kind of like listens to her. It almost seems like it's the very first time that anybody listens to her. Yeah. Right? And that's what makes it so powerful. And however sexually charged I think the atmosphere of it is, although I, I would kind of argue that the actual presence of like this sexual connotation is more so interesting in the way that like her confrontations with women, whether sexual or not, make her remember her mother is is very is very very interesting yeah i'm curious like what are your thoughts on that there's a definite kind of textual and formal vulnerability to it right the nudity is not necessarily yeah. just returning to that state of innocence it's just a way of kind of illustrating the kind of com i guess comfort she has with her mother in that sense i don't mm -hmm. think it's charged i might be taking a step too far saying that charged with any kind of mm -hmm. sexuality so to speak but i mean just having that scene contrasted with other intimacy scenes in the movie, right, where someone's like laying on top and it becomes this kind of dire exercise. And we even have Heinrich's monologue where he speaks about being in bed with a loved one, with his wife, for example. Not necessarily that that's the same relationship here, but, you know, kind of feeling lonely even in that moment where your two bodies are touching. And this is, you know, this is a scene where, you know, I mean, it's in a, a kind of myriad of scenes with her mother where she says, you know, I never had anyone to talk to. And Anna's like, well, you never wanted to talk to me. And you have an inversion of that now where she's the one being listened to. It's this de mm -hmm. absolute demolition of beards if you're paying attention to the film. It's so mm -hmm. strikingly different to everything mm -hmm. else that when you're having, you're taking that kind of, you know, you know, of a nude woman in bed with someone else and finally feeling connected and shared. I don't know. I don't read the sense of eroticism to it. It's just, it's, mm -hmm. it's really just a catharsis. Honestly, that's a love. Mm -hmm. That's a word we love on here, but it's such a strong moment of film. I think precisely for that reason, for just breaking down. Well, I mean, hell, let's just say it, breaking down the other rules she's kind of set in other interactions in this yeah. film. Yeah, like not to mention the only other time she's like in, obviously nude in bed with someone is like when she when her and Heinrich are kind of like having sex when they're in uh, in Cologne. But even that is shot in profile. Yeah, you know, like there is a there there isn't there's an inherent dominance to one body being on top of the other in that situation. They can't be side by side, right? Yeah. But then, what does she do with the final scene? The way that it's staged with Anna and her mother when they're you know sleeping in the hotel room is Anna is on the left and her mother is on the right. But in the final scene, when Anna finally returns to her apartment, she lays down in bed, but in the same part of the frame that her mother was laying down in, in their bed. And what is in the spot of Anna but an answering machine? 
that she plays. And this is how the film ends. She's gone through her kind of odyssey returning to Paris. She turns on her answering machine, and a plethora of messages just kind of keep playing. There's people, like it's her publicist for her movies, you know, telling her she's got to be here, here, and here in the next few days. I mean, that's the beauty of Europe, being able to go from Zurich to <laughs> Rome in a, in a matter of like 12 hours. She has to do that. It's, there's people, you know, wondering about, you know, if they could celebrate her birthday. Actually, the final line of the film is just so intensely sad to me, where it's her one friend saying, I was wondering if I wanted to spend my birthday with you. And he says, maybe next year. But it's the message right before that. And it's, it's of this, this, it's this female voice that is kind of inferred to be her lover. Yeah. Who is kind of hilariously fumbling with the machine saying, oh, this damned machine. You know, what do you make of all those messages? I, I think I texted you and I think it's like this immense sadness of life passing you by. It's all of these people who like the voices that she kind of yearns to hear and like the people that would most likely listen to her that, you know, she's only hearing this past remnant of what they had to say to her. Yeah. I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to sensationalize the answering machine in any way. I mean, obviously it's a very good invention. But what I'm saying is, is that these moments of like people speaking to her, wanting to speak to her, are they are petrified in time in this sort of way they're crystallized it's like you know how i think you the title of our, our crank episode was in digital amber clad yeah. you know these are these these are moments of intimacy that are very much in amber clad like they are fragments of some sort of past and she can only kind of solemnly and skeletally lay on her bed and look into the distance yeah perhaps something a bit romantic about it. and i think that you've i think you spelled it out really beautifully but now i'm just going to circle back to what we talked about at the beginning of our pod this notion of having our time taken from us and now you know i'm i'm just thinking about a film that's so laden with transients in the way that you know our own eyeballs are kind of you know substitutes for the way a camera works and the way that we are watching our life pass us by we're having our time taken you know by whether it's professional or personal and we're losing the time again to kind of like make that human connection at the end of the day so to be f- romantic about it itself, we're talking, this is a podcast. Everyone who's listening to up to this point, you're getting the same kind of sensation of kind of being on this answering machine. You're listening to a ghost or a fragment of what we're discussing in this moment right now. I think maybe that's a bit heady to get into for a podcast episode, but it does speak to an evolving way of how human relationships were working even at that point in 1978. And now we're getting to a point where you know, obviously social media has kind of entered the equation. This kind of social phenomenon or practice really of being left unread, of being ghosted. Mm. I don't know. I feel deeply sad about it. And I did write about it online on Letterboxd that, you know, we haven't made huge strides with having these ellipses in our lives, in our conversations, in our relationships. Mm. You have to feel as much as, I don't know, as a stand-in for Ackerman. Also just to stand in for mm. ourselves. And, you know, what progress have we made since then? Probably zip. That's the kind of takeaway I have. I think it's a very sobering one. But it's also definitely, you have to kind of find the optimism in something like that. I can't help but, I guess, feel a little romantic about the way Ackerman frames just the way relationships break apart. Sorry for not addressing the queerness, I, think, I guess, more substantively. I don't think that's my field of expertise. But, you know, while that is an undercurrent in the film, I, I don't know if I could, you know, appropriately address that with the time I have or even just the experience I have in that, yeah. I think I feel the same way. I mean, there's this kind of element of her relationships with people like Heinrich and even Daniel, which it's like, it becomes transactional. Like Heinrich just wants, like he wants Anna to come over to meet his mother and his daughter. 
and Daniel, like, you know, the, the relation, the, the confrontation breaks down into her going to a pharmacy to find stuff for him and like mending to his, his illness, to his, you know, to his, uh, his ailments. And then when she, I don't know, when she tries to be playful, he's like, don't do that. That sort of thing. Not that whatever that's just it's one thing or another and i it like you know likewise it's not my area of expertise but it, it is interesting where like the relationships where she feels like she has the most agency are relegated to memory yeah right and that just happens to be her queer relationships with women so you know it's no it's no surprise i mean even if for a film made in 1978 that this is that was that is a phenomenon and that may still you know it very well is a phenomenon not a phenomenon but it's a very it's a material experience that you know endures yeah for people and and you know for it to be kind of represented in this very this solemn but very you know elegant way is is just another testament i think to like ackerman's you know filmmaking ability yeah that's my piece on on the meanings of anna though honestly like we've kind of run out of time but man what a film like what a film like like right now you know news from home jutu il el no home movie like these all these all kind of have just like jumped up my watch list i think yeah honestly just a beautiful thing to for i mean just to start this pod and to run into films like this you know to have that kind of yeah. first time experience is a beautiful thing we don't talk about them maybe often enough we had lost highway last week which we both rewatched there's obviously unique experiences to it but to kind of experience again a film where we can't necessarily dolly back in the same way it's a really great encounter mm-hmm. it does make me feel grateful for the podcast which you guys are listening to right now mm-hmm. it's just a voicemail for you mm-hmm. guys yeah so whether or not you're laying on your bed listening to this or if you're on a train going somewhere else, we hope you enjoyed. But that's it for this week's episode of Dolly Back on the meanings of Anna. If you have the ability to, it is streaming on Criterion Channel. It is a pretty beautiful transfer, so do try and check it out if you can. We will link both. Uh, well, we didn't really get into the Little White Lies article, but it is a good read as well as the Missing Links piece by Brandon Kaufman on Mubi. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DollyBackPod. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the meanings of Anna or any other of our episodes. So please do hit us up. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's episode of Dolly Back. We'll catch you next time. I think this is going to be the one week where it sounds the most resonant, but see you next week.